0: Yes, there are a lot of voices right now telling us who we are, but there's only one voice that really counts, and that's the voice of the Lord God. He decides who we are and tells us who we are, right? Amen? Amen. You are who Jesus says you are. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your truth, and we are now gathered in your presence, Privilege to have your word, and I pray, oh God, that you would open it up to our hearts and our minds. I pray that it will be delivered accurately and honestly, and that the Spirit of God will go to work in our lives using the word of God to teach us how we are to understand ourselves and to understand our relationship with you. So I pray, oh God, that this will be a glorious morning for us as we continue to worship you by honoring your word in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, there are two words that have sort of gained traction over the last couple of years. They're parting words, and they sound to me like fingernails being scraped down a blackboard. Now, I know I'm dating myself, and the millennials here are saying, I have no idea what that feels like or sounds like, because a whiteboard just doesn't capture the same thing. But for those of you who know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We used to, when we were saying goodbye to each other, a parting company, we'd say stop something like, you know, see you later, or, take care, or take it easy. And now we're saying... You afraid? Stay safe. Now, I'm not mad at you, but henceforth, do not say that to me. And I'm going to explain why, okay? Because we're not really, I I don't see myself, and I'm I'm trusting that you don't either. By the the way, what we're talking about today is is, is I am who God says I am, the promise of salvation, and all that's glorious about that, I'm not called, and you're not called to live your life scurrying from one obscure crevice to another like some scared rodent. That's not who we are. That's not not what God has, has, has made us to be. No, not at all. In fact, Christians aren't safe or even called to be safe. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans, well, actually, he's He's borrowing from Psalm 44:22, and he says in Romans 8, 36, for your sake, we, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Does that sound safe to you? It doesn't sound safe to me. We're, we're living right now in the midst of a mess, a mess of brokenness and fallenness in this fallen world. And it's really easy. It's becoming easy for us, I think, to to, to lose a sense of our own identity and and forget what we are and what we have and and why we should be filled with overflowing joy and hope. And I hope my prayer and hope is, by the time we're completed this section of Scripture today, you're going to leave filled with joy and hope because we have every reason to be that We're not called to be transfixed on loss and getting lost in the wilderness of the fear of man and the fear of nature. Last week, if you'll recall, we looked at the wilderness of insecure abandonment. Today I want to look at the wilderness of being afraid of man and nature and eternal lostness, which is handled by the promise of our salvation. So would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 42 and 43? Not all of both of those chapters, a little bit of both of them. Isaiah 42, we're gonna look at verse 18 and read through 43 down to seven. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're answering the question, do we exist to stay safe? Is that, is that what you, when you stand before Jesus Christ someday and say to him, well, you know what? I stayed safe. How do you think that's gonna Go over with him. If you know anything about the Lord and you read Matthew 21, there was a guy there who played it safe, buried stuff, scurried around from crevice to crevice, hiding things. How did that go for him with Jesus? He was called a worthless servant. We're not called to this at all. We're called to something better than this. We were called to live under the shadow of the promise to live saved, to live saved. I want to drill that into your hearts this morning. We're not staying safe, we're living saved. That's who we are. So let's look at the text, and I want you to notice a contrast. In chapter 42, verse 18, right through to 25, I want you to notice the contrast as we switch into chapter 43, and notice the stark change that takes place because of our great God. So we start out with God's lament through the prophet Isaiah about the state of Israel, the state of their hearts. And it it reads this way. Hear you deaf, look you blind, and see who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things but have paid no attention Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Contrast. But now, This is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Well, this is the word of God, isn't that glorious? This is an amazing text. This is fascinating. I, I'm excited about the, the three glorious identity markers I get to talk to you about this morning that I, uh, the promise of the grace of his salvation that. Uh, That should chase away all your fear of man, fear of nature, fear of eternal lostness, and not worried about safeness. This is the word of God to us today. By the way, it's not accidental at all that in this text, in this word of God, it it transitions uh, um, from a mess, from a, a disarray to abrupt creation. In, for, in 43, chapter 43, notice the words created, formed, made, uh, all, all of these words. Listen, the first of the glorious identity markers that we find here in the text is this. And I've, I've framed them in so that you can personalize them. I'm not going to say you, I'm going to say I. I. Include myself, I'm going to include those of you who know the Lord. And these are your identity markers, Okay. Own them. I am intentionally created to be in God's family. Purposely belonging. I am intentionally created to be in God's family. Any of you who have been around me for any time at all, you know that I am passionately, non negotiably committed to God as the first and only cause of sudden creation. I believe it because the word of God states it. But I also believe it when we look at a text like this and we realize what is really laid out here before us. Do you realize, do, do we realize, in what God has stated here and how he has connected his salvation of Israel and ultimately us, because verse seven says, everyone who is called by my name, so includes us, us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that the fact that of God's power to create is the basis for his power to save. Do you see? It's not like God is making new people. That's not what he's talking about here. He's making a people for himself. He's creating a people for himself. The church is a people for himself. His claim on Israel's salvation is an act of his creation. That's the kind of words that are being used here. He who created you, he who formed you, O Israel. A a people that a a people of God exists at all in this world is on the basis of the fact that God has the power to save because he is a God who creates, a God who created this universe. The uh, people of God exist in this sin-addicted world because God has made them, because God has formed them, because God has created them. You and me, this church, the church of Jesus Christ around the world exists because God has intentionally fashioned and formed and made it. There's no other explanation. There is no other explanation for Israel to have existed and to still exist, but that God called them out as a nation. There is, no ex- there is no explanation, no other explanation for the fact that a church of Jesus Christ, under all of these several thousand years of persecution, and ha- that it, it, it still exists, that it in fact exists, is because of God, is because of what Christ has done. And it's not accidental in Pauline theology When you read in the epistles in the New Testament that Paul regularly relies on creation when he talks about the mechanisms of salvation, such uh, uh, statements as, as 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has called light into our hearts as we stare into the face of God through Christ Jesus. So here you have this, this uh, amazing statement that we're intentionally created by a God who can create. Now look, at not only is it the fact of God's power to create is the basis for his power to save, but the focus of God's creative power is directed at our salvation. What is God up to now? He created the whole universe. You know he called the universe into existence. And I believe fully in sudden creation. Six six days of creation. God called the universe into existence. And likewise, God is now calling a new creation into existence called his church. We are a new creation. God is calling out of this world, of this world that has rejected him, he is calling a people who will be the people for all eternity, that populate his kingdom. That's what he is doing. That's the focus of God's creative power. That's why we're called a new creation. As designer and owner of this universe, at his beck and call, God calls us his new creation. Those in various theological circles, let's say progressive theological circles, Sanding down the gritty truth of a dominant creator to salve the absurd sensitivities of an agenda-riddled science community are going to find out that they're left with bad science and bad theology that lacks any power to save. I'm, I'm going to mention that again. You might find yourself in a church like that, not here, but as people join us online, you might find yourself in a church that's sanding down the egregious teachings of creation to placate some sort of, you know, pride-riddled science community. I'm telling you that the theology of the scriptures, you sand that away, you're throwing away salvation theology with it. It's not just a front end of the book or a front beginning of the book. The reality of God as a creator God Sudden creation wins its way through the whole scriptures. And it it itself is the basis for our salvation that God can create. You don't evolve into a saved man by accidental coincidences or a saved woman or by intentional niceties. You are intentionally called into new creation conversion. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what this text teaches right here. Secondly, I am personally added to God's family at a costly price. I want you to notice there's a word here, redeemed. And um, we also see, I give Egypt for your ransom. What is being taught here? What clearly is being taught to us um, in this promise of salvation is that is the reality of god's grace now i I purposely said to you pay attention when we're reading the text of the contrast when we go from chapter 42 to chapter 43 we read in chapter 42 about people israel in particular who have who are living in a just a horrible way they're they're turning their backs on god they're they're ignoring what what he says they're, they're, they're turned over as loot and plunder. They are, they're a mess. And, and suddenly, we get to verse 1 of 43. But now, this is what the Lord says. I who created you, O Jacob, I who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by name, and you are mine. There's nothing that has changed in Israel's behavior. Not a thing. There's still... An, they're still poured out and, and, and plundered and looted and sinning and turning their back. Nothing has changed. But God reaches out and brings them to himself, not for anything good that they have done, not because they are wise or a special people or a, 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 more, a, a greater nation, but rather by his grace, God chooses to call them his own and to create a people for his own name, for his glory, and pays for them, redeems them, ransoms them at his own personal cost. This is an amazing thing here. They are a mess. We were a mess. All of us were a mess before we came to know Christ. Before, by grace, God reached us and tr- brought us to himself at a tremendous cost. We're going to look at it in a few moments. But nothing has changed in that these people should merit the favor of God. Not at all. In fact, just the opposite. And it's the same with us. Nothing could change in the absence of di- divine choice to bring us to himself. So I'm personally added to God's family at a costly price. And and in the Garden of Eden, Satan sought to trash grace first. You know, you, you can tell what is threatening to the world of darkness by what the world of darkness emphasizes. And what was most threatening to Satan is the grace of God. Why? In, in the Garden of Eden, God gives Adam and Eve everything they could possibly need. Not because they had earned any of his favor, not because they had done anything good, but because he chose. He chose them by grace. And, and he set aside one tree that they could not eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the tree that Satan decided to key on and says to them, god doesn't want you to have that tree because god doesn't want you to have something that will benefit you that he doesn't have he doesn't want you to be like him he doesn't want you to benefit from him he doesn't want you he's protecting himself from what you will gain in effect he was breathing into their ears the notion that god's not really freely giving you anything this is all about benefiting him and so he does through the ages of religion where he says you need to earn your favor with god because god won't give you anything free and the point of all of the scriptures are there's nothing that humans could possibly bring to God that he needs. There's absolutely nothing. And we could never pay the cost, as you're gonna see in a moment, we could never pay the the cost for our salvation. The the, the cost, the expense is too great for any human to be able to pay. And so the truth is, I have paid, what, what God states very quickly is, I have redeemed you. I that word redeems to buy you back. I have bought you. You couldn't buy yourself. You couldn't pay the price. I have summoned you by my grace, by grace alone. You have been brought and you have been bought to respond in faith and obedience. This redemptive grace, this buying us by God's grace, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we could earn it, not because of anything good we had done. This, per, this, this redeeming grace that, that God has offered to us always precedes obedience. It's not that we did something good and then God responded to us. We didn't do anything good. We couldn't. In fact, if you pay attention to how God rescued Israel out of Egypt... He first of all rescues, rescues them out of Egypt, and then once he has rescued them, what does he do? He gives them the law, so that they are saved by his grace and given the law in order to know how to live a life that would please him. It's the same with the great commission that Jesus has given to us. Go make disciples, and then what? Baptize them, and then what? Teach them to obey. So obeying is impossible without Christ, Baptism isn't going to earn you salvation because it's, it comes after. Salvation is by grace. God chooses out of the depth of his love to bring us into a relationship with him and then teach us how we can live to please him, having given us the Holy Spirit and the energy to be able to do exactly what he calls us to do. That's what's been done for us. That's how we've been added. But it's, but it's at a costly price. It says here, the ransom has been paid. Notice the ransom, I will give Egypt for your ransom. Verse 3, Cush and Seba, the price of the exchange was nation sacrificed, is why Christ became sin for us. We're gonna to need to turn back a little bit in the scriptures to understand what's going on here, what I, I, Isaiah is actually teaching us here. So turn back to Exodus chapter 13. We've got to go back there. I wanna take a sweeping look at, at the history of God's call on Israel, because it's the only way we can understand this, and it will help us to understand our own salvation if we understand this. And by the way, as I said to the first group this morning, this study alone, this dive into ransom and redemption, and what God has done for us alone as it relates to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. This alone it ensures in my heart that this. Bible is an amazing and miraculous work of God, and there's no possible explanation that over thousands of years, anybody could put together this amazing ransom theology that would connect so continuously and make so much sense. It's just not possible, and I'm sure you're going to notice it here, and it's going to be a wow factor for you this morning, but I want you to notice that um, in Exodus chapter 13, I don't know if I told you to go there. Exodus chapter 13, verses 2 and 12, we learn something about God. We learn that the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, God says, whether man or animal. And we get a little more clarification in verse 12 of Exodus 13. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, all the firstborn males of your livestock, belong to the Lord. And in fact, the firstborn men, boy child, belonged to the Lord. The firstborn. In fact, the, the uh, phrasing there is every life, every male life that opens the womb belongs to the Lord, both in Israel and in, the, in, their, uh, in their flocks. First fruits, we get that through the scriptures. That's why when Abraham was called on by God to sacrifice Isaac and he raised his knife and we're reading in horror in Genesis chapter 22 saying what in the world is going on here? God is asking for child sacrifice and Abraham is only too willing to lift up a knife and sacrifice his child. None of us would do that. We we, we can't even comprehend that. Listen, this wasn't a big stretch for Abraham. Abraham fully understood that as God, as creator, everything belonged to him. And Abraham knew that the first fruits belonged to God. And he was ready to do the sacrifice of the firstborn if God required it of him, because that's what he understood. But you know that God stopped him from doing that and, and told him that there was a ram that would be the substitute sacrifice, that would be the ransom, that would... Pay the price of Isaac's life. We continue on reading through the history of Israel. and we get to the, the, the king of Egypt in Exodus chapter one, who says to the Hebrew midwives, "Whenever there are, are male infant Israelites born, kill them." And we look at that and we say, that's horrible. Of course we say that's horrible. And we look at the text and we say, wow, child sacrifice or killing children. Is that's not all that's going on there. Behind the scenes, the reason that Satan stirred up the king of Egypt to do such a thing is because that was a total affront to God's rightful ownership over those male children. They belonged as the first fruits. That opened the wombs of their mothers belonged to the Lord. And then we move along to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh of Egypt won't let Israel go. We get to verse 14 of Exodus 13. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This was not just a slaughter of people. This was a theological reality of ransom. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. There is a price to be paid for salvation. There is a price to be paid, a ransom to be paid, to buy out of the slave market of uh, of sinfulness. But what we need to understand in That's why the prophet here writes that I, God writes, I give Egypt for your ransom. We need to understand that all of this is pointing to Christ, the ransom for our salvation, the purchase price for our salvation. In the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 21, 18, it says this, the wicked become a ransom for the righteous. They become, the wicked become the payment for the righteous. And what do we, how do we understand that? That's why Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. The wicked become the payment for the righteous. In this twist, the firstborn son of God becomes the ransom price for our salvation. And in so doing, do we understand what happens here? In so doing, by Jesus being the ransom price for our salvation as the firstborn Son of God, He makes us firstborns, firstfruits to God. When we answer the question that we're asking today, I am who God says I am, you are firstborn. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are firstfruits, you belong to the Lord. That's what this says. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15:20. Christ is the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. In Romans 8:29, he says, the first, You are the firstborn among many brothers, because of what Christ has done for us, so that we can all be made firstborns. The property of God. And this runs throughout the scriptures. Well, finally, I am included. Because God loves me. I'm included because God loves me. Made for intimacy. Look at, look at verse four. Since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. We love God because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. We love God because he first loved us. We didn't first love God. God first loved us. That's what he says to Israel. I've called you and made you precious in my sight and honored in my sight because I loved you. Because I loved you. He's exchanged from the, among the masses of men because you are loved. We have been exchanged. Christ is our ransom price. And we are now brought into a kingdom of God. We are made for God, by the way, not because he needs us, but because we need him at the very beginning of the book we are told that we are made in the image of god the image and likeness of god that changes everything about who we are see god is a communal god the triune god god has eternally existed in three persons one god three persons in community from eternity past that means being made in the image and, right, image and likeness of God means that we were made like God in terms of relationship, the need for relationship. God is a relating God, a God of community. We have made in the image of a relational communal God, the Godhead, and we are made for relationship with God and for relationship with each other, with God's people. And because of that, there is, because we are made that way, hearts are restless until they find rest in God. The people around you are totally restless. They're totally searching. They're totally lost. They're totally aimless. They're like ships without rudders. They've lost their core center. They don't know who they are. We know who we are. We know who we are. We are loved by God. We are made for God. We are made to relate to God. God offers us more than a religion which is what all, the vast majority of other people know. He offers us daily intimacy with Him. That's what it means to know God. That's why, in, that's why Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.4, He has granted us His precious and His very great promises so that through them... We might become partakers of the divine nature. We have the ultimate relationship with God through what Jesus Christ has done for us. He gave Egypt and Northern Africa as the ransom for his people. He has given his son as the ransom for us. That's what we're taught. And we are called by name. Do you see that in verse one? I have summoned you by name. Not some sort of group collection or or some number that you have, some uh, social insurance number. That's not how God views you, God has called you individually by name. And you'll notice at the end of this section, he has called you by name and every, everyone who is called by my name and has placed his name on you. This is kind of a picture, of, almost like a, a marriage picture where, where a, a woman takes on the name of her husband and in so doing becomes heir of all that he has. It's the same with God. He calls us by name to have an intimate relationship with Him. And we are now called by His name. And in in being called by His name, we uh, we now receive the inheritance of all that He has. All that He has now belongs to us because of who we are. But I need to tell you as we wind this up, it won't be safe. It's glorious. I mean, look at, look, at, look at the descriptions. You're summoned by name. You're bought with a, uh, an expensive price. You belong to God. You are mine. Uh, you, he is our savior. He is our God. You are precious to God. You are honored in his sight. He loves you. He calls you by his name. He's created you for his glory. If you're wondering what your purpose is, there it is. He's called you for his glory. And and he's formed and he's made you. All of this is true. But it won't be safe. Because I've left out a couple of verses in description. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Does that sound safe to any of you? Going through the waters, going through the river, going through the fire, does that sound like a safe life to any of you? Does it sound safe to me, especially when you know what he's referring to here? He's referring to his people walking through the Red Sea parted by our great God. He's referring to the Jordan River at flood season and they walk through that river. He's referring to, the, to, to Jonah in the belly of a whale. He's referring to the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace. None of those scenarios really appeared safe. What God is saying to you here is it won't be safe, but I will go with you. I, I will, I, there's no calamity that can take you away from me or take you away from who you are or take you away from the love that I have for you. That's why the Apostle Paul could write, who can separate us from the love of God? What could separate us? Can death, can life, can height, depth, width? Can angels or demons, principalities, sickness? Can, can anything separate us from the love of God? And the rhetorical answer is no. Nothing can separate us because we are precious in his sight. We are honored in his sight. We are loved by him. We are called by him. We are brought into a new creation kingdom by him that he intends for us to occupy for all eternity. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, the promise of his salvation. On the way home, it won't be safe. But God says, I can bring you... To myself, I can call you to myself. I can keep you for myself. Everyone who's called by my name. So that I would display the glory of God's gracious salvation work. That's what we get to do. We get to live our lives and vindicate by our salvation the glory of God. What does that look like? Vindicating the salvation of God. We are put out in display for all to see what God can do with a messed up, wrecked, wayward life and completely convert it into a totally different new life. We are literally, when we come to know Christ, we are literally a new creation of God. The old, the old is gone. The new has come. We are a new nation, a new creation, and we get to live for him and demonstrate that that his salvation was worth the cost to Christ by how we live, that that we were formerly enemies and now we're part of his family. We formerly cursed God, but now we bless him and worship him and love him. That vindicates his salvation, uh, salvation vindicates his glory, that he is the glorious one. Now at the Lord's table, the incredible drama of what we have just rehearsed this morning from this text is played out for us. We, his firstborn, because of what Jesus has done for us, now get to remember the great cost of our salvation. And to recognize that we are who God says we are, precious and honored and loved and called into his family on purpose for all eternity and made into a new creation. We get to remember that. And not only to remember that, but to celebrate it with profound thanksgiving, which brings great glory to God. So join me right now at the table of our Lord because of what he's done for us. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us and and the immense grace and love that would give the Son of God as the ransom price for our salvation. What a costly, costly sacrifice for us. Lord, may we not forget that as we go to the table of the Lord now. May we recognize that you have called us your firstborn, firstfruits, that belong to the Lord. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm a first fruit. I'm called a first fruit of yours and brought into your relationship with you forever and ever. Oh, Lord, may we rejoice with great joy at the table of the Lord this morning. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.